You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm Carlos Noche, and I'm joined by my podcast partner, Lisa Schneer. Say hi, Lisa. Hi, everyone. Today, we have a really exciting guest, and I'm really looking forward to it. In fact, I think we're going to cover a few topics because I believe that he is an expert on a lot of different things, and he has the data to back it up. The first topic we're probably going to jump into is broken sales forecasting. Why is it not working? What are some of the biggest mistakes? And what are some insights on things that we can do to fix it and create much better predictability? So I know you can't wait, folks. I can't wait either to help us out with this topic today. We have Udi Lettergore, who's five-time VP of marketing with 20-plus years of industry experience heading world-class marketing teams, also the author of The 50 Secrets of Trade Show Success, and currently the CMO of the Revenue Intelligence Category Leader, Gong. Udi, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Lisa. That's a hard intro to follow. I can only get the point from here. <laughs> hardly, hardly. I, pull, I I didn't even pull everything from your profile. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Um, excited to talk about things that are keeping me busy and they're keeping other sales and marketing leaders busy. So um, happy to start with forecasting if, if that's a good starting point. Well, here, let's do this. Since uh, you're a popular fella, this is one thing we like to do at the beginning of our podcast, just to get the people to know you a little bit more personally. And that is this. What's something that you're very passionate about in your personal life that people that only know you through work may be surprised to know about you? I would say it's the opening of all the performing arts seasons right now. So the opera season has started, the ballet season is starting, there are musicals from Broadway visiting San Francisco where I live right now. So I'm excited about seeing more of those. And then I, in a spur of the moment decision, decided to take my son next month to see Phantom of the Opera on Broadway before it closes because he was bummed to hear it's closing. So I'm like, let's just go and watch it. So I booked us 48-hour tickets during Thanksgiving. We're going to watch the show and come back home. Awesome. That's right. And something like a 30-some-year run. I'm probably butchering that, but it's been decades. It has been 30 years. No, you're not wrong. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, incredible. It's the longest-running musical ever. It's time has come. I'm sure there'll be revivals in the future, but... uh, just fun now educating my seven-year-old son, getting him to know the songs and the story. And he's got so many questions. How could she love oh, all those scars? And how does he find food in the basement of the opera house? <laughs> really good questions. Right? There's so many holes that only a seven-year-old can find. <laughs> I love it. That was one of my favorite plays. I thought it was awesome and done right. The, the stage work that they do is amazing. So It's amazing. I thought it was awesome. All right. Now we'll get a little more serious, maybe. So tell us a little bit about your background, Udi. Like, what's your story? How'd you get to where you're at today? What was your journey to get there? Just you know, a little more background. Absolutely. So if we go really back, I think it's interesting. I started with performing arts, and it's no coincidence that as a child, I was also excited about performing arts. And uh, for many years, I did magic as a child. And I did puppetry, and I did stage lighting. And at some point, I got into music. 
And uh, to this day, I don't do puppetry or, or stage lighting or magic anymore, but I do play the piano. I'm working on a piece the last few days that, that I hope will be recording quality in the next couple of weeks. So I'm still very much into that. And fast forward a couple of decades, I think looking for a grown-up version of how I could make my career with some of those things I'm so passionate about, I fell into marketing because marketing is really putting on a show for your audience. It is creating an experience, whether it's an event or a webinar or a podcast or a piece of content that helps people throughout their day and leaves something memorable with them. So I think there is a direct connection between my love for the performing arts and what I do today in marketing. In my early career days, I started in product management, where I see that role as a sort of bridge between the R&D teams trying to explain what they do to the customers and how that's useful to them, and then bringing back feedback from customers to tell R&D what they need to do next. And in the five years that I was a product manager, I discovered that I love both parts of the jobs, but I was truly passionate about the customer-facing part of it, trying to advocate what our company was doing and why customers should care and how we could make their lives easier. And so from there, the switch from product management to marketing was kind of natural. I got sick of telling R&D where to put the big red button and write requirement docs. So I moved on to focus more on the customer side and bringing them in with interest for our product and explaining our products to them, simplifying it in terms that they would find useful and valuable. So that's how I got started probably 20 something years ago. And for the last, I'd say, 18 years, 17, 18 years, I've been heading marketing teams and consulting and advising to CMOs uh, across the globe. It's been very exciting. Now I'm at Gong for the last six plus years. That's an amazing story. And uh, I'm excited to learn more about what you love about it, which we'll get to in a minute. But um, wanted to tease out because we mentioned about sales forecasting is broken. And we, Carlos and I see this a lot in our work as well, and we get asked about it all the time. So really curious about what you think about why is it so much like looking into a crystal ball rather than confidently and accurately reliable? So even in good times, sales forecasting is hard. Dan from my research team found that in Q1 of this year, which was before things started really going downhill, 85% of S&P 500 companies uh, inflated their forecasting and admitted to it when their earnings came back lower than, than they had anticipated. And that was before things got really complicated. And one of the reasons things got really complicated, well, maybe let's start with what happens in good times. In good times, you've got really good salespeople that have happy ears for those unfamiliar with the term. So every time <laughs> the customer says, I see, or I find this interesting, they're like, I'm putting this deal in commit. I'm ready to commit to this deal. And of course, that's not reality. It's not how it happens. And a lot of forecasting traditionally has been based on gut feeling and emotions and opinions and the number that the rep thinks their manager wants to hear and not necessarily their realistic expectation. So all of these biases and skewed numbers go in even on a good day. What's happened in the last six months, which is causing all these companies to miss their earnings, is that they rely too much on historical data and what the finance people called linearity charts, which basically tells you if you're at this point in the quarter, based on your previous quarters, you should be at this point in your earnings compared to your forecast. The problem with that historical data is it only works if there's stability between the quarters. If you know that next quarter is going to roughly mimic last quarter or the last 10 quarters, then you can sort of reliably rely on that. But when times are unprecedented like now, all that linearity and historicals go out the window. They're absolutely useless. 
And then the top-down forecast doesn't mean very much. You've got to go bottoms up. You've got to, well, we'll talk about solutions soon, but the historicals and the linearity are just worthless in unprecedented times. We saw this happen just two years ago during COVID when companies didn't know what to expect and they realized that what had worked in 2019 is not going to work in 2020. And we're seeing that again now, unfortunately, under different dire economics situation, but we're seeing the same pattern where the historical forecasting abilities are just unhelpful. So true. Sorry, Lisa, if I could jump in there. I just I was going to add one more thing to your mix of, it seems like, challenges and making that work. And that is, your forecast is only as good as the data that you get. And if we got reps giving us the I thinks, I believes, I assume, then we're putting assumptions on top of assumptions. Any thoughts on that? And how do we make that better? Absolutely. I mean, here's my long-term view on this. If you look at professions like marketing and finance, we've been accustomed to using hard data to run our businesses for decades. If I didn't know what the conversion rate on my homepage is or how many people are clicking my ad on LinkedIn, I could not keep my job. If my head of FP&A or CFO did not know exactly how much we spent last month and what we invested in, in Udi's crazy ad ideas, he would not keep his job. Yet sales leaders have been let off the hook for decades using, I think, and I believe, just like you said, Carlos, in lieu of actual data. Like, why do you think these 12 deals are going to close? Are you speaking with procurement already? Did you get a written commitment? Uh, no, I just have a good feeling about this. I've <laughs> talked to them. I've known this guy for a year now. No, that you can't keep doing that. And this is what's changing. This is what's changing. Salespeople have been let off the hook for far too long, and they're now being reined in, say, hey, you've got to digitally transform your organization. You've got to start relying on actual truths and facts and data, or as we call them, gong reality, mm -hmm. to make your forecast and to manage your pipeline and to coach your salespeople. You can't keep using gut feelings and anecdotal experiences to run your entire organization. And I'm going to steal this from Carlos was saying something earlier that so Gong can't make the call for you in the way that it should be made and ask the questions that you should be asking and making sure that that performance from the discovery all the way through the sales cycle on those calls is the way that it should be for us to surface those realities. So how do you recommend people take the intelligence Gong can give you and action that into a coaching program? There's a ton of ways you can do this. I'll start answering by way of example that I think will be very illustrative, at least one really good way of doing this. We have a customer in, in Canada. It's a really good company called Touch Bistro. They sell a point of sales software and hardware package to restaurants. I'm sharing this story with their permission. Paul Nelson, their SVP of sales, great guy, longtime Gong customer. And he's told this story on stage with me a couple of times before. When they started using Gong, they had part of their sales team lead their sales pitch by focusing on their software features and how it's better than the competition. They had other salespeople who were leading with the hardware features of this is the iPad and this is how you connect it and this is why we chose this for you, et cetera. Now, they never really knew which version of that sales pitch works better because some salespeople were doing okay with this pitch and others were doing okay with that pitch. Within about six weeks of using Gong, Gong surfaced a very clear pattern showing that the group of salespeople leading with the software components of their product were outwinning the ones leading with the hardware components by a striking 30% higher win rate, 30% higher win rate. Armed with that information and exact 
examples of how salespeople were correctly pitching software to win deals, they retrained the entire team and they saw the entire team's win rate go up consistently. And they've grown many times over since then, continuing to use Gong to perfect their sales pitch. I met their team in an event just a few weeks ago, and they've been growing over and over again using Gong to figure out what's actually working and not working. And when they recognize that winning pattern with Gong, they can go and retrain the whole team. So that is a classic example of what some people call cloning your A players or cloning your best performers, because it's so hard to articulate what they are doing differently. If you ask them, they don't know. If you ask your best performer, what are you doing different? Why is Jane selling better than John? She doesn't know. She just does her thing. But when you start using artificial intelligence and machine learning to dissect what Jane is doing, then you can find these things that are virtually impossible for a human to find. Definitely impossible if you want to scan thousands of calls to see the nuances of the winning patterns. So I can do that now. Why not use it? Love that. It's a little side story to, and I'm not trying to promote Gong, but I, it is a great story. So, <laughs> well, I am. We are in no way sponsored by Gong. We'll just say that, or at least not yet. <laughs> if you sponsor us, I'll say it all the time. But, uh, so Udi, one of our clients, and you know, at the end of the day, we're trying to promote sales behavior. Human beings feeling comfortable enough to do things just a little bit different to get a better result. So one of the reps comes back to me and I always offers up, hey, I'll do a little one-on-one coaching, help you out. And one of the things you talked to was, Carl, I'm really struggling getting that overall business driver, which really driving this account. I'm trying, but it's not working for me. I go, well, well do you have a recording of the last call you had when you tried? He goes, I do. I'm going to send it to you. I'm going to send you my gong recording. And I listened to the thing and I saw the whole setup and then I got her back on the phone. I go, look, you're right. You are asking, but you also asked three other questions right along with it. <laughs> and what ended up happening is the individual answered your last question, which is human behavior. So a part of it is not only asking, but even just having the confidence to take that breath and listen to that answer. And I go, don't, but don't take my word for it because maybe I'm being overly critical. You listen to the call. And it was a great way to try to get them to see the light because I think there's a big difference between what you think you're doing, your own perceptions, and I'll use your word, reality, right? What's really happening in these conversations? And I thought that was, it was so much easier to do it because we did have the gone recording to look at. We did have the information to kind of even see what it went. Going back to this little reliability on getting better reliable forecasting and predictability, I'm curious, Udi, how have you been able to do that within your own organization? How do you leverage Gong or, or anything else to really get the right data to make better predictions? Yeah, so I love that story. And for those who haven't listened to their own sales call, there's nothing more cringeworthy and satisfying at the same time as listening to your own sales calls. I am convinced that I sound like Kermit the Frog <laughs> when I listen to myself speaking. It sounds awful. There's a biological reason for why we don't hear ourselves the way others hear us, but that's for a different story. But it's so telling to hear yourself and say, oh, I should have said that or I should have stopped there. And he was going to say something, but I didn't read his body language there. Just by listening to yourself, even before getting any detailed coaching, you're already going to be making yourself better. So I highly recommend that everyone tries that, like you said, Carlos. Now, to answer your question on what we've done at Gong to improve our forecasting in the last few months, here are four things that we've done that have worked really, really well. Number one, we've replaced opinion with reality. I'll be talking a lot about reality. It's kind of our thing. 
we took out the gut feelings that I believe, that I think, and we replaced them with show me the data. And we do use Gong to do this. There are other ways of doing this. Everyone can pick their own way. But we've replaced opinions with reality. We record all of our customer interactions. We see what's being said. We see who we're talking to. We know when the last interaction happened. If your deal is in commit for this quarter and you haven't been talking to procurement in the last 30 days, should it really be in commit? Or if your decision maker left the organization and you're now stuck with a third level manager, is that deal really going to close? And it's really hard to track these things, especially if you're listening to people's anecdotes and opinions. So number one is replace opinion with reality. Number two is we replace manual work or a lot of the manual work with automated capture and insights. If you've got a tiny sales team and you're kind of trying to sell the three big deals this quarter, you can probably do that manually. But as soon as you get dozens or hundreds of salespeople and you're now working on dozens and hundreds and thousands of opportunities, there's no way to manually collect all that information or you'd need a huge workforce just to work on collecting all that information. So having an autonomous system who captures all those interactions and surfaces deal warnings like you haven't discussed next steps or this deal has gone dark in the last three weeks, they're so easy to miss if you're doing this manually and you're working on a large number of deals. So working with an autonomous system that does this for you is super helpful. Then number three is consolidating the multiple tools that teams used to use for forecasting. Every time I ask a group of sales leaders, how many versions of your forecasting spreadsheets are out there in your organization? And they always put their head down in shame because they know they have way too many versions of their forecasting spreadsheet. There should only be one. And it should probably not be a spreadsheet because spreadsheets are very error prone. So consolidate all this into one tool that takes in all the customer conversations, rolls up all the bottoms up forecasting, and look at one pane of glass or one sheet of music, whatever analogy you want to use, that everyone sees the same forecast on. And then finally, number four, we talked about that a little bit earlier, and that is replace the past with the present. If you are using historical data and linearity charts from peacetime quarters, and we're now in wartime, those peacetime pieces of data are absolutely useless right now. So replace that with understanding what's happening right now, throw out the old linearity charts because they are misleading you to the wrong forecast. Ooh, really good advice. And so, and I assume Gong has some ways like, because I know enough about it, having used it in the past, that you set your trackers, right? Like the words that we want to track and you pick up on. Do you have or do you provide like the best practices guide for the forecasting specifically, like track these terms to get to that reality? Absolutely. So let me kind of break down your multiple questions there. Here's what I'm here. So number one, first, about 90 days ago, we introduced a brand new product. It's actually the first product that we've released since the core Gong product that we came out with almost six years ago. We released our first product that's entirely built on top of the Gong Reality platform, and it's simply called Gong Forecast. Okay. And the name is kind of self-descriptive. That's what it does. It will help you build your forecast for you with very, very little work from the reps. Uh, it, our customers are reporting that they're spending about 60 or 70% less time preparing for the weekly forecast than they did before Gong because it's all in there. So it will roll up your forecast for you. So you don't have to set up trackers to do this and it will show all the deal warnings and all of that. Now you did ask about trackers. So I will say two quick things about one. I think this was also four months ago, we released in response to what's going on in the economy right now, we released a new capability that's available to all Gong customers and it's simply called Economy Pulse. And Economy Pulse is kind of a economy tracker on steroids 
that tracks all your customer conversations for any mention of how the economy is affecting their business, because that's going to trigger a warning in some cases, if they're talking about hiring freezes, or God forbid, layoffs, or anything like that, or budget freezes, or we're going to punt all this project, that'll show up in that tracker. It's actually oftentimes used to calm some people down and show that things are not as bad as it looks, because we found that, yes, the economy is coming up in calls definitely more than it did six months ago, but it's not coming up in 70% of the calls. It's coming up in maybe eight or nine or 12% of the calls. It's different between organizations and different industries, but just using that to track, you can go back to the salespeople that are saying, oh, it's so hard out there. Everyone's stopping everything because of the economy. And then you look at their deals and the tracker and you say, well, actually, this only came up in 9% of your calls. How do you know it's the economy? And then you can dig further into that. And then the, the last thing I'll say on trackers, and this is a brand new release from just last week, we released the industry-first smart trackers that go well beyond looking for specific keywords. And they now use a very sophisticated artificial intelligence algorithm to look for any way that the customer or the sales rep could be talking about a certain topic. I'll give you an example. In the past, if you wanted to see when your reps are offering a discount, that's a problem many companies have, that they their reps are preemptively offering discounts because they just want to get the deal off the table, and they're probably leaving a lot of money on the table. And so managers want to know who's doing this, why are they doing it? When are they doing it, et cetera? So in the past, you had to think of all the different combinations that the rep could offer a discount to catch the exact words. But today, all you need to do, and it takes a few minutes to set up the discount tracker, if the customer says, so can I get a better deal? It'll catch that as a discount conversation. Can the customer say something like, well, your competitor gave us better terms? It'll catch that now as well. So it's really getting into our heads and saying, what are all the different ways that people can talk about discounts? And it will show you a variety of things that it found. And you can help train the algorithm in a few fun clicks. Our customers love it because it's almost like playing a computer game. You say, yes, this is what I'm looking for. No, that's not what I'm looking for. And in a few short minutes, you've set this up and it'll now find the thousands of ways that your customers might be talking about a certain topic or mentioning a competitor or anything relevant to your industry that's affecting how you close deals. This is amazing. And I got to tell you, that, of course, it's no secret, Carlos and I both work, we train in the value selling framework. One of the tools that is just the, one of the more exciting things for us to do is actually what we use for deal reviews. And it's getting to that reality by asking very specific questions and not deviating from the definition of the thing that you're asking about. So one thing that comes up a lot, we teach about business imperatives or business issues. This is the person's number one time-bound quantifiable goal that they need to achieve, the person's goal that they need to achieve. And we need to try to tie to that so that we're prioritized along with their number one goal. And every time you ask it, Udi, the answer, like you say, do you have the business issue? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Okay. What is it? And it's got to be time-bound, quantifiable, and tied to business strategy. And as soon as you unpack it, it's like, no. <laughs> no. Not even close. <laughs> got to go back and dig into that. So what I love about this is that you've got, you're providing the data to really back this up. But also, everything I just heard you say, I've flipped the script into... Now I could coach people and become so much more self-aware on active listening. 
So Gong helps you do that, of course. Like it's listening for you as well for those things. But it's going to make me a better listener because it's teaching me how to listen for certain things. It is. You know what's one of the fun metrics that I like tracking on my calls, and, and I know many of our customers do as well, it's called the patience factor. And within Gong, it's a built-in report, and it basically counts how many milliseconds you can shut up after you stop talking and let the other side speak. Here are a couple of spoilers. So one, there's one gender that is clearly above and beyond to doing this than the other. Can you any of you take a wild guess which gender that is? Women? Yes. Yes. Lisa has raised her hand. It's definitely not Carlos and my gender. It is not. It is the women. They are far and beyond better than men. And we've seen this across hundreds of thousands of salespeople in our data. Women are way better listeners and they actually know how to shut up. Us men could learn how to do that. They also typically ask better questions farther apart and wait for their customer to actually respond, unlike us men that just go on charging with more and more questions. So that's one really interesting thing. The other interesting tidbit is that as you start tracking this for yourself, like I do, you see that your talk time goes down and that your patient factor goes up because you see how it affects your sales calls and you become just more aware of it. Some people try to train themselves, oh, I need to take a three-second pause, yet in reality, it's less than one second. If you've ever tried to take a three-second pause in a conversation, it seems like forever. <laughs> it's really, really hard. It's really, really hard. And there's some parts of the sales conversation where it's so crucial. Maybe the most crucial one is after, if you're a salesperson, after you present your pricing, hmm. you absolutely shut up. And so many salespeople crack under the pressure there there's a awkward silence for 1.2 seconds, and then they jump in and say, oh, but that's just list price. Let me talk to you about our discounts. Uh, <laughs> you just left 40% of your deal size on the table. Yeah. Just shut up. Let the customer take in what you just said and come back to you. It might actually be something surprising, like, that actually sounds reasonable. <laughs> what do you know? You just didn't give them enough time to take in what you just said and process. Yeah. So once you learn how to do that and you can see the number in front of you, you can see the charts. Are you waiting enough or too little or too much? And you can continue improving on that. It's a self-learning skill. I think my sweetheart would say I would fail miserably on that patience factor. <laughs> all of us, Carlos, all of us. <laughs> uh, even though I try to tell others to do it. In fact, you talked about the pricing. One of the things we talk about a lot is, hey, if you don't believe in the price, half the bottle is already lost. 100%. If you don't believe we're worth what we're asking for at list price, and I even hate that word, then hey, no one else's. I have research on that as well. You are rightfully hating that word. It is leaving money on the table. As soon as you say the words list price, the average deal size is going to be lower. We found this in our data. Yep. And we've come up with half a dozen alternatives. If you say anything different, like this is the approved pricing. This is the best pricing I can give you. You're already increasing Better. your deal size. We'll try that next time. Just remove list price from the lexicon. I try to go with, hey, people ask for the price. Here's the price. Here's the proposal. This is what it costs, right? Yeah, fact. Because then you don't lead them. As soon as you start any conversation about list price, best price, I could do better. You're opening the door to negotiate. 100%. And amazingly enough, once I started doing it, I probably sell more deals at our stated price than almost anybody else. There you go. Because that's the price it is. And now if they want to come back at me and try to work, hey, now it's a negotiation. And by the way, I'm more than happy to start the process. But are you telling me we've won? You want to come with us? 
but you got to get it to fit your budget because that's a different conversation than, hey, I'm just trying to beat you up and get the best price out of you and the three other guys. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're right. And I'm a Latin kid from New York. I got to work on my words that I use. I, I tell other people the words really matter. Words create emotional bonds with people. And sometimes we forget that. And some of it is just who we are. Like, you know, I, I do want to give someone the best price. But half of that battle is realizing I am the best price. I'm worth this money, right? So I'm passionate about that too. And I got a long way to get better. I probably need a lot more improvement on my patience factor. And my home life would agree with me a thousand percent on that one. Carlos, I know you love factual tidbits. Here's another little one for you. You're, you're talking about self-improvement and change. You know, in the last 20 years, there's a lot of research being put out about happiness. It's a relatively new research topic that academic researchers are working on. And what they found in recent years, one of the things that leads to happiness is change. People who reported that they've done something to change themselves, like learned a new skill, changed their career. People who changed report being much happier than people who don't think that they've changed much in recent years. So there's another clue for us. While change is uncomfortable many times, and there's a great quote about one of our board members, Gina, she uses that. She says, I don't want to butcher her quote, but she says it's something about change always being uncomfortable. It's always stepping out of your comfort zone. It's never comfortable. And, we, and I'm sure she says in better words than I do, but the research also supports that. You will be happier if you go through that change. So it's totally worth it. Yeah, that's I follow like an Instagram account that's called something like Entrepreneur's Quotes, and it comes up all the time. It's like comfort zone is where everything good goes to die. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely, but it's so comfortable there. Yeah, exactly. As we try to promote behavioral change, the line I use is, uh, "Hey, look, you're either getting better or you're getting worse every single day. There is no just staying the same. The world around you will not just let you stay the same." They're trying to get your lunch money. So either you're going to get better and stay ahead of it or not. And that's a choice we make every day. I think it was the Cheshire Cat in Alice in Wonderland who said that you've got to run just to keep up. <laughs> you're staying in place, you're already behind. You've got to run just to keep up. All right. I got one question for you based on our amazing research team. I've heard something of that you've done some research on swearing on sales calls. And being a Latin kid from New York, we, we might be known as throwing a, a swearing word here and there. So I'd love to get your analysis. Give us some advice. Don't do it. Do it. What'd you come up with? It turns out that the Latin kids from New York had it right all along, but I'll explain. <laughs> First, I'll start with the headline. If used correctly, swearing on sales calls can increase your win rates, we found, by up to 9%, which is a lot. Yes. Which is a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. <laughs> now, here's the nuance. I'm not just saying go drop an F-bomb or the S-word in every call. That's probably not how you're going to win more deals or not even keep your job. But here's how it works. If folks have read Chris Voss's book, Never Split the Difference, yeah. or heard him speak, I recommend you do. You can take his master class. He talks a lot about uh, mirroring as a technique for creating empathy and rapport, in his case, with hostage situations where he was talking to kidnappers in his work in the FBI, but it's actually just as useful in sales and usually a lot safer too. So here's the thing. If you take a cue from your prospect and you hear her using some swear words and she'll occasionally drop an S word or an F bomb or whatever language she chooses to use, and you tactfully mirror that and start weaving similar vocabulary in your words, you are now creating better report, better trust, 
and increasing your win rates by up to 9%. So it's as simple as that. It's just in a, one specific case of an effective mirroring technique. But we looked into thousands of calls where swear words were used, and we we're like, shit, they're selling more. <laughs> <laughs> that was our literal verbatim response. That was efforts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? Right? They're actually selling more. Amazing. And I'm curious just on this topic. So did that correlate at all with the research? And I'm sorry, I don't have a quote on where this came from. I just remember reading at one point over the past recent past that something about cursing creating more trust. And so that correlated well with that, it sounds like. It does, because it actually people feel that you're more authentic right. because we all use these words that we teach our children to never use and we <laughs> teach our employees to never use, but we all use them in life. And so when you let these things slip out, you're coming off as more sincere, as more authentic, as this is the true Lisa. And people want to talk with the true Lisa. They don't want to talk with the corporate version suited up. So it's as simple as that. And it works in every walk of, of life that we've looked at. We've looked at personal situation and work situation, academic situations. If you look for the story we published a couple of years ago in fastcompany.com, we covered a, a bit of that horizontal research on how swearing is actually helpful in a variety of situations, including, by the way, decreasing physical pain. There's a beautiful experiment mm. where they had someone stick their hand in an ice bucket and they measured how long they could keep their hand in an ice bucket without pulling it out. For half of the group, they just said, put your hand in there, shut up. And when you can't take any more, pull your hand out. For the other group, they said, you can swear and go like, shit, this is so painful. And F, I want this to be over. That group could leave their hand in there for, I think, about 30% longer. Wow. Turns out that it releases some chemicals in our brains as we use these swear words. And it actually decreases physical pain. Wow. So if that doesn't convince you, I don't know what will. Go to the maternity ward at any hospital and they'll tell you. Oh, seriously. <laughs> you'll hear some colorful language there, right? <laughs> seriously. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. It helps. It scientifically helps. Okay. Good to know. I'm going to tell all my friends that. <laughs> so, uh, well, they'll know. Can't wait for my kids to find out. There you go. Right. I know that's going to be a double-edged sword there. Appropriate time. So last question, because I think this is going to have a great answer and would love to leave some really good actionable insight with our listeners. Not that you didn't already just provide a whole bunch, but what would you point to as one of the biggest mistakes or missteps that you've taken in your life or career that had an impactful enough thing that you could turn it into advice for our listeners to avoid doing the same? <laughs> sure. So this one's kind of a serious one. A couple of years ago, I'll take you back to June of 2020. Uh, this was after the horrible murder of George Floyd and the, the rise of the Black Lives Movement and everything else that was going on. We still had a business to run at Gong and we were adapting our content calendar and posting and donating to the right causes and doing what, what we thought was right for the time. And then there was this run-of-the-mill reviews collection campaign that we needed to run. For those unfamiliar, there are websites like G2 and Trustpilot and, and others that collect reviews. And we occasionally send out an email to customers incentivizing them to go write a review, not telling them what to write because we can't control that, but just asking them to write an honest review. And we found in the past that by giving them a small like $25 Amazon gift card can help push more of them to write a review. And someone on the team had an idea, well, what if with everything going on right now, we transform that gift card into a donation that we'll make on behalf of the customers, the customer who's writing a review will take those $25 we're going to give you anyway and offer to donate them to a Black Lives Matter organization. 
And without giving it too much thought, I thought, yeah, that could work. And then we sent out the campaign to about 6,000 people that we wanted them to go write reviews, offering to donate whatever amount it was to a Black Lives Matter organization. And it backfired pretty badly. You can already guess where this is going. So within the first hour that we sent out the campaign, I got a handful of emails. I think it was six or eight emails that some of them were politely saying, this doesn't feel like the gong I know and love. I don't know why you're tying my review to doing the right thing. If you want to donate, just go donate. Don't tie it in with whatever you're asking me to do. Others were a little more verbal. They must have read my swearing article before <laughs> that. They definitely used some of that vocabulary to tell me what they thought of the campaign. And we had to make a quick decision. I had to make a quick decision. Do I just let this go and assume that a few people got offended? Or do I do something quickly to, to try and correct this? I believe in, in the saying that the fortune favors the brave, the brave, the doers, the people who actually do something. So within two hours of sending that first email out and getting that handful of responses, my assumption was that for every one person who took the time to write back a response, there's probably 10 or 20 who are feeling the same or worse, but don't have the time or patience to write me about it. So I'm like, if I got six responses, they probably represent 100 who already feel shitty about this. Mm. And so I wrote an apology email and I sent it out to all the 6,000 people. Most of them didn't even get a chance to open the first email because it literally went out two hours later. So most of them didn't even open the first email, but I sent out an apology email with, with some attention-grabbing headline to make sure they opened that one. And to that email, I got over 40 responses, 100% of them positive, saying, I didn't quite know how to put in words my response to your first email, and I'm so glad you figured it out and send out this email. I'm now going to write the review. I'm also going to donate money. And by the way, in, in, within that apology, where we I totally took ownership for the mess up. I also said, forget about the whole donation matching thing. We're now donating so-and-so thousands of dollars to Black Lives Matter. You don't have to worry about that. And sorry for the mess up. And so that was what we did. I felt we did the right thing quickly after messing up. And the, the lesson from that is that anything that has to do with these burning social issues uh, need a lot of thought around them to not even create the optics of taking advantage of a suffering or painful situation for business profit. I will never, ever do that again. That's an amazing story. And yes, I can see, you can see where the heart was from. And that's probably what those people who didn't initially respond were thinking because they know Gong, they love Gong. They realize that the brand would never do that intentionally. And yeah, that was, that's a great story around course correcting there. Amazing. And I wish we could talk all day, Udi, but unfortunately, we've got to wrap this up. But we ask our guests two questions at the end of every episode. And I want to start with, you are a revenue executive yourself. You must get prospected to daily, if not multiple times a day. And I'm curious, if that person does not have a warm introduction to you, has no connection to you, mutual connection to you, what can they do to gain your interest and, or like earn your attention and maybe even earn a response? Show me immediate value. I can tell you the types of emails and LinkedIn messages that I respond to and forward to my team is if someone screenshot my homepage and just send me a three-minute teardown of all the problems he found there and how he can help me fix them. I will 100% forward that to my team and get back to them, even if I don't need their services right now. If they did some competitor research and immediately showed me value on something that I'm missing that I could be doing better to beat my competition, I will respond to that email and so on and so on. But show me the immediate value. The emails that I will never respond to are some generic, 
What does your calendar look like next week? Can I grab 20 minutes of your time? No, you cannot grab 20 minutes of my time. <laughs> my kids don't have that 20 minutes that I want to give them. Why would I give them to some random person that's showing me zero value so you can give me your pitch over 20 minutes? I don't have time for that. So the more personalized it is, and show me that you did the research. People sometimes give me a quote from my own book, or they listen to a previous podcast and said, hey, I heard you on Lisa's podcast. I love when you said that. And I wanted to ask you something else about that. It shows me that they know me, that they did the research. And if they're providing immediate value, I will get back to them. Excellent. Yeah, we call that a lot of times, we call it a value-based interruption, right? Because it's funny, because I got a recent email telling me they looked at our website and there's they have some great ideas for me, but they didn't share a single idea. Exactly. So I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> They're waiting for you to reply so they actually go do the work. No. <laughs> no, you do the work up front. All right. Here's our closure question. We call it Acceleration Insights. You've given us a ton of great information, Udi, and I really appreciate it. What might be that one piece of advice you'd want to give our listeners that helps them achieve their goals in their lives? I would say, I know you're looking for one-liner. It's going to be a little bit longer, though. It's all right. I subscribe to the idea that that your life is like a four burner stove, if you've never heard that analogy before. And you can assign those burners to your mental and physical health, your family, your social relationship, and your work. Those are kind of the common four. And just like at home, you usually don't have enough gas pressure to put all of them on the high. And you need to decide consciously which ones you're going to turn the knob on to high, which one you're going to turn on low, or even shut off for a while. And you have to think about your life that way. And there are going to be times where you're going to be feeling guilty because your work demands so much from you that you can't invest enough in your health or in your children or in your social relationships. There are going to be other times where you're like, you know what? My kids need me right now, this time of the year or their childhood. I'm going to turn the burner down on work and maybe not go to the gym for a couple of months so I can do this stuff. And when you do that consciously, you feel less guilty. You'll feel like you're focusing on the right things because none of us can ever be on high on everything. And when we try to, that's when we feel burnout. That's when we feel shitty about ourselves. So by saying, no, I'm consciously turning this burner now, I'm not going to meet friends for the next two months. I've got too many family and work things going on right now. You already feel better because you made a conscious decision and you know it's temporary and you know then two months you're going to be redialing those knobs. I yep. like that. Yep. That's really good. Yeah, because that's the same thing where they say that multitasking was debunked. It doesn't exist. You're doing a bunch of things terribly. <laughs> it's true. In another podcast, we can talk about advice for when you have to do multitasking. <laughs> yeah, I think the burners analogy is a good starting point. Absolutely. Perfect. Thank you so much, Udi, for that. And uh, if a listener was interested in getting in touch with you to talk more about your topics today, about Gong, about hiring you as a speaker, what's your preferred method of contact? LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. There's only one Udi letter gore there, so you can't go wrong. <laughs> I'm happy to connect with all the listeners on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for having me. Amazing. It's been so great having you on the show. And we wish we could have a three-hour podcast like Joe Rogan does, but unfortunately, <laughs> not there yet. <laughs> Maybe next time. Maybe next time. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. Please check us out at www.b2brevexec.com. Share this episode with your family, your friends, your kids, your dogs. And if you like what you hear, please do us a favor and throw us a five-star review on iTunes. I am Lisa Schneer. I am joined by my podcast partner in crime, Carlos Noche. And until next time, we wish you nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. 
To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.